Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, would you please speak to us? By your spirit, uh, would you touch our lives in the areas where we need to be challenged, changed, transformed, encouraged? And Father, ultimately, may we, may we become more like Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. My almost five-year-old has discovered superheroes, and he just loves superheroes now. He plays superheroes, he jumps around like superheroes, he wakes up as a superhero, and the other day I was playing superheroes with him, and he's really the only one that knows what's going on. Uh, My two-year-old and myself, we just play along, and he kind of tells us what's happening. And I started out, and he said, okay, what hero do you want to be? And then he gave me a list of heroes I could be. And I always said, I want to be Superman, because I want to be invincible. And he said, you can't be Superman. You said I could be any superhero I want to be. No, you have to be the Hulk. Why do I have to be the Hulk? Because you're big and fat, Daddy. (laughs) Okay, I guess I'll be the Hulk then. And so we're playing for a while, and partway through, I got changed into Darth Vader and became the enemy. And they all tackled me, they both, the two boys tackled me, got me down, and my five-year-old starts putting uh, rope over me, fake rope, to hold me down. And as the little one comes over and starts copying his brother, the four-year-old says, no, you can't do it like that, it's got to be bigger, because daddy's fat. What is going on? I finally sat up and I said, Kenan, what? Why, why do you think I'm so fat? I mean, maybe I could lose a little bit, but I, don't, I wouldn't say fat. And he goes, well, Daddy, my shoulders are really small, and yours are really big. You're fat. That's fat? It means all of you are fat, too. <laughs> Just thought you'd hear that good for a Sunday morning. You're all fat. Thanks for coming to church. <laughs> for a good, like, 10 minutes, there's this back and forth going on that I'm being called something, thinking one thing, and he's meaning something very different, and, and, and eventually I'm, I'm not offended, I mean he's four, but I'm a little irritated because of a misunderstanding. My shoulders are quite a bit bigger than his. I mean, he's like this big. My shoulders are bigger than his. I guess if that's what you mean by fat, I'm fat. It's important to know what somebody means by a word that they're using. I mean, this is like the roots of a lot of sitcom comedy. I mean, think of, many of you will know this, think of like Three's Company. How many times were one person on one side of a door hearing what's going on on the other side of the door and thinking something really bad is happening over there and it's really not? That idea of what is actually going on, what do the words actually mean? What am I really being called to? Today, John is going to talk about repentance. Now, last week it was brought up. Today, it's opened up. Last week, it's mentioned, repentance. But if you don't understand what that word really means, how do you do it? Or what if you find yourself doing something that really isn't what you were called to? Because this whole passage is on 
what really is this thing, repentance? What does it mean? What does it not mean? How do I do it? In fact, partway through the crowds are actually going to ask the question, what do we do? And John's going to tell them. Today we explore repentance. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. If you need a Bible, there are some back there if you didn't bring one with you. Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How's that for an introduction? So we got last week that there's a baptism for repentance, and there are crowds that are coming out to John. John's at the Jordan, and here come these crowds, and these are, at least in one instance, opening words to them. How would you like those opening words when you came to church? Like the pastor comes up and says, good morning, welcome to redemption, you brood of vipers. (laughs) I mean, this is kind of harsh language here. What is John doing? There's an image here. You've got a viper who has had children, a brood, and those children are in the rocks. And when a fire happens in the area, the snakes flee. And it's a running from the fire or a slithering from the fire. Without really thought, it's just get away. That's the image that John has in mind. But to call them vipers cannot help but bring in the idea of Genesis 3. I mean, this is not a positive statement. You don't call somebody viper or a brood of vipers in a positive way. There's something very negative here in John's thinking. You vipers, you sons of... Now, these are Jews who would think of themselves as the sons of God. You son of the devil. Very harsh language. Who warns you to flee? Why are you coming? That's his question. When you get to the heart of the question, he says to them, why are you here? You have come out to the wilderness. You've heard a message. You know that wrath is coming, but why are you really here? In a moment, I know you're going to walk out and you're going to get baptized. Can I tell you something about rituals? In and of themselves, they don't mean squat. And that comes from a church that has all kinds of rituals. I mean, just look at me, right? Look at all the colors and the stuff that we have up here, and we walk out, we process, and we have a cross, and we have all of this stuff. We are filled with rituals. In and of themselves, they don't have meaning. It's not the ritual. Can I tell you that if I take some water and I splash you with it, it doesn't mean you're baptized? If you jump in a pool, it doesn't mean you're baptized? You can come up here and you can even receive communion. But there's words that we say right before, receive these in your heart by faith. If you just walk up here and take a cracker, it's a cracker. And that's a glass of port, okay? The symbols are only symbols if faith is not a part of them. 
And if you don't know what they mean, you lose something. John would ask the same question. He could even ask you, heck, let's just get bigger. Let's move outside of Anglicanism and just to church. Why are you here? Why do you come to church? I mean, do you come out of some sense of duty or guilt or as long as I come, somehow I feel a little better about myself for being at the place? Or do you come to meet with the people of God to worship the God of the universe? That, that's why we're called here. Those rituals. Have you ever thought about the cross coming out? I can tell you, when I, my first time at an Anglican church, very first time, and it, it's so vivid in my mind, not the entire service, but portions of it, especially that first part, because I was sitting on an aisle just like this, and I'm sitting on this edge, and I'd never seen it before. And, and the procession's coming out in the cross, and I look up, and I see that cross, and it just struck my heart. The cross of Christ lifted up above everything else coming in to the church. Now, if you go way back, it would be leading the people in. You're following the cross in. And then we process it out because you're following the cross out into the world. We have a child carrying it because if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you need to come like a child. I mean, there is so much meaning in these rituals. They have value when you know what you are doing and when you do it in faith. That's John's question to them. Why are you here? Why are you doing these things? Part of the reason I became Anglican is because I saw the value in the rituals. I saw the value in physically, tangibly doing things in the faith. Because I came out of a church that did wonderful, awesome things, but it was very heady all the time. Um, it was very much up here. There was nothing to look at. There was nothing to do with your hands. You didn't stand together and proclaim things. I began to want some of that. I wanted to live into a faith. We didn't have seasons. Like this whole church calendar thing, this is meant to guide your spiritual life. It's not just a ritual we do because it's Christmas time. You know, we like purple because it's Christmas. That that's, has nothing to do with it. It's to guide our whole life. It's, it's to, to lead us and to, to move us through the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ as the way in which we see ourselves. All these rituals can have a lot of value, even as what he's calling them can, but not if they're just coming out out of duty or out of, I'm just gonna do it because you said it, as if that will do anything. Let me explain the rituals in this way. Right, imagine a sailboat. The sail is out, the wind is blowing on it, and the boat begins to move. Okay, the wind is what's blowing the boat, not the sails. The sails aren't blowing the boat. If there's no wind, you can put the sails up all you want. You're not going to go anywhere. You need the wind. But this is also true. If the sails aren't up, you're still not going to go anywhere. You're just going to be there. The rituals that we do, they are meant to be like a sail coming out. Right? God is moving. God is moving in this world. He's moving in your life. He's moving in the church. Part of the way that we open ourselves to him 
is through these various things that we are doing in faith. We're saying, God, I'm here. I want to be used. We are pulling that sail out. So John asks the question, why are you here? Why did you come out? We asked the question this morning, why are you here? And John keeps going. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So on one side, John says this. If you want to really repent, you need to know what you're doing. Don't just come out here and get in the water. If you're coming out here, I want you to know why you're coming out here. But number two, I want the act itself to be real. And here's real. If your repentance is real, let there be fruit that follows. Bear fruit. Let there be a response. Hey, don't do this. Don't just come up and say, God, I messed up, I'm sorry. And then go around and start doing everything you were doing before that point. Because your repentance didn't mean anything. It wasn't real. Repentance that is real bears fruit. Now, hear me, I'm not saying this. I am not saying that you'll never sin again. I'm not saying that you come and go, Lord, I heartfelt, I repent, I mean it, and now I'm perfect. If you do do that, let me know. I want to know how it happened. But that's not it at all. But there is a big difference between I am sorry, I'm sorry that I got caught, I'm sorry that I I feel bad, I have some guilt, but I'm not actually going to change my life at all. I'm just going to be sorry until the guilt is gone, and then I'm going to go do it again and live exactly the same way I was living before this point. John says, bear repentance, bear fruit that keeps in line with the repentance. Let there be some change. The word repent means to turn. You cannot keep walking the same direction and repent. It's not possible. The very nature of repentance is a turning. And that's what John is getting at, bear fruits. Let the repentance, in fact, I would say this. Let your faith bear fruit. I mean, if you say you believe, your life should not be the same as it was before you said you believed. If it is, what's the point? What belief do you have? There must be fruit in your life. I have seen this kind of fruit in a number of different businesses recently. Um, last week, I shared the story of that McDonald's worker that, like, in the middle of, like, he, everything is busy and there's lines, and he shuts his register down to go over and feed somebody. He did not get in trouble for that, even though it was right in the middle of that thing. Because if you go look at the values for McDonald's, the number one is taking care of the customer. He was doing what the company professes it's about. I was just at Corner Bakery this week, 
And I have noticed a change in Corner Bakery, like over on Preston. For whatever reason, their customer service has just like skyrocketed. I mean, they, they're coming out and it's just a very different feel to the point that I'm sitting there and like a guy came out with the big coffee thing and he walked to a table with it and set it down. And he said, the coffee is finally ready, ma'am. I wanted to bring you a cup. And filled her cup up there and then carried it back. That the customer is first. I mean, it, it's fruits. It's showing that it's real. I just read this story. There's a, a company, REI. It's an outdoors company. They have 143 stores. One of their biggest days of the year is Black Friday. They closed all 143 stores for Black Friday and paid their employees to go out and be in the wilderness. Because that's what they're about. They're about being outside and being sports. And they said, we want people, we want our customers to be out there. That's what we are about. This is all bearing fruit for what you profess. What is it you profess? Who do you say you are? Who do you say Christ is? Who do you say your, what do you say your life is supposed to be? Is there fruit following it? Right, that, that's John's things. Bear fruit with repentance. Show that your profession meant something. And, and this is important, I think, for all of us, there's no excuses. There's no justifications. That, that's, that's what he says to these Jews. He says, and don't say to yourself, we're children of Abraham. Don't think there's some way you're getting off. Like, you don't need this. Like, you can just go through a particular ritual and everything's good because somehow you've got the right ancestry. There are no excuses or justifications before God Almighty. You cannot rely on somebody else's faith. You cannot rely on your relationship to another person. You cannot rely on a profession of, well, I was good for a while, and that'll just cover me. Now I can go do whatever I want. God's good with it. There are no justifications. There are no excuses. You stand before God. That's what he tells them. What are your excuses? What are your justifications? What are the things that you fall back on so that you don't have to deal with the truth of who you are, of how you are living? What are your fears? What are your insecurities? What is keeping you from fully giving yourself over to Jesus? John's asking them and he's asking us same question. There's a judgment theme in here. By the way, um, maybe you've been to Advent services before, and, and so far this season you've wondered when we're going to actually hit Christmas because we've had none of the baby Jesus or none of the normal Christmas stories. And Advent is about the first and the second coming of Christ. And we're preaching all of it this Advent. Next week, you'll get more baby Jesus. So come back if you need baby Jesus. You'll get more of that. 
Christmas Eve, you'll get baby Jesus. Right now, this is part of the message of Advent, as hard as that message is, because this last part, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a message of judgment in Advent. There has to be, for two reasons. Number one, there is a second coming. He's coming back. It's not just here. We haven't been left here. He's returning. But number two, he would never have come in the first place if there was no judgment. Because there would be no reason for him to come and to die for our sins. If there wasn't going to be a judgment, we'd all just get off. God would just go, you know, so you screwed up a little bit. That's okay. Come on in. I'm good with that. The fact that he came means there has to be judgment because he gave his life. It was so profound. We have that part of it. Now, if you want to truly live out repentance, what does that look like? Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? They heard it. They hear John loud and clear. Like, this has got to be real here. What do we do then? What's, what's our action? What's our, what's our next step? Help us out. Sounds a little bit like Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives a gospel message and says, you have crucified the Lord of glory. And they all go, oh my goodness, we have messed up. What do we do? Here's these guys. We've come out, but our motives may not have been right. Boy, we're getting right now. What do we do? How do we do this the right way? What are you calling us to? Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, generally, to the people that are out there, John says, here's where it starts. I want you to have real compassion for people. You want to know what turning from the old life and turning to the new life is? You've got, in this period of time, you've got people wearing an inner and an outer garment. And you've also got people who don't have any. And John says to them, I want you to take one of the ones you have, and I want you to give it to somebody who doesn't have it. I know it may cost you something, but I want you to have compassion in your life in the same way that was compassion was shown to you in Christ. You give that. Right? Food. There are people that aren't eating. Give them some food. That's part of repentance. A generic thing to this whole crowd. Give out of what you have. Uh, Trey mentioned the frostbite thing we're doing. Do you have clothing at home that you can give to somebody who doesn't? That's part of John's message. Do you have a blanket at home that you're not using? Can you bring it? Have compassion, even if it means giving up something. But then he gets specific. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. There's this entire taxation system in Rome. Um, it is quite complicated. There are multiple kinds of taxes. You get your basic land tax. You get business tax. You get taxes on goods. And you have different people at times collecting different taxes. I mean, it's a very complicated system. Most likely, these, because they are probably Jews who have come out, 
These are the people who are collecting taxes from their own people, and they would have bought this position. They would have had to bid to be these people. So they've got to pay Rome. They've got to pay the taxes. They've got to pay their own so they can collect more than what is needed so they can pay themselves. But that's also part of their living. They were hated by your average Jew. They were traitors. But they've come out, and so they want to know what to do. Verse 12, tax collectors also came out to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. That is profound. Because that's not the expectation. If you were standing in that crowd, the expectation probably would have been turn away from being a tax collector. Because it's evil and wicked and horrible and against God and against us and against your people. Turn away from that. That's not what he says. He says, don't take more than what you need. Don't abuse your power for greed. Don't abuse the people of God that you have to collect from. Just do your job in an honorable and ethical way. Everybody in here, if you have a job, I don't care what your job is, unless your job is unethical. And there are a few of those, but I assume none of you have one. I don't care what your job is. Whether you are a teacher or a banker, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, don't abuse your power. Because every job has that possibility. Don't abuse your power. Be honorable. Be ethical. Do what you're supposed to do for the honor of God. That is part of turning your life. That's part of repentance. You know, right now, if you can look at your job and go, I have been living in an unhonorable way. I've been doing things that don't honor God, don't honor my employer, don't honor my family. I've been abusing my power. Repentance is turning from that, not getting rid of your job. It's turning from it and doing your job in an honorable way. Yet another set, soldiers were also asked, and it's possible, there's a number of different groups this could be. Um, A likely group would be those soldiers that are with tax collectors. They are there to make sure you pay your taxes. And this also in Greek connects the two. And so it may be that these are the soldiers that have actually come out with the tax collectors. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He says essentially the same thing that he said to the tax collector. You too, don't abuse your power. Don't go to that poor person and extort them. Don't get more money out of them, either by threats or deception or by anything like that. Just do the honorable thing. But he adds something at the end. Be content with your wages. Part of turning, and and hear this, because it's very big and it goes way beyond wages. Part of repentance, I don't care what you're turning from. You might be turning away from an unethical way of doing your job. You might be turning away from a deceptive and manipulative relationship that you are in, that you are the one doing it. 
You might be turning away from something really, really awful. It doesn't matter. The reason you're there in the first place is because you are not content with where God wants you. Because I guarantee you, he doesn't want you there. You want more money. You need somehow more comfort. You have to figure out how to make this person be what you want them to be. All of it comes down to a lack of contentment in who God wants you to be, where God wants you to be, and who God wants them to be. He says to these soldiers, be content because it will cut the legs out from underneath your threats and your extortion and your deception because the only reason you do those things is to get more than what God is providing for you. At the heart of repentance is contentment. Turning back to the way God wants us to be. I'm going to read through another paragraph, but I'm actually not going to talk through the whole paragraph. Um, we're coming toward the end here. But I need to get to a particular verse, and I don't want to just rip that verse out of the context. Verse 15 is the people were in expectation. They're waiting, they're excited, they're, they're, they're turning, they're hearing the message from John. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ um, he's such a powerful speaker. He's saying these things. He's turning them and like, could this be the one is their question. And John answered them all by saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. It doesn't matter how great I am. I'm the first real prophet in 400 years. I am the one coming to announce Messiah. But I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the sandal of the guy who is coming. It doesn't matter how great I may be. He is that much greater. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news. Does anybody else find that ironic at all? I mean... I mean, let me just read verse 17 again. With his winnowing fork in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Amen, good news. That just seems really out of place, that little section right there. But here is here's what it all comes to. Why is it good news? It is good news for this reason. I'm going to tell you something, and maybe you know this, and maybe you don't. We, every person in this room, we deserve hell. In case you don't know that. Every one of us. The reason it is good news is because he didn't leave us to that. The reason it is good news is because no matter what you have done or how you have lived, no matter what path you've been going on, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is greater 
the good news is we aren't chaff when we have faith in him. The good news is the fire is coming and we aren't a part of it when we are in him. Are you in him? Do you know Christ? Have you ever turned your life over to Christ? Have you ever said to him, I have sinned. I know it. I know I have turned away. But I'm trusting you. Because that is salvation. Trusting in Christ and living your life for him. Finding that contentment that allows you to turn from things that you think you need, that I think I need, when really the only thing you need is him. And you turn from it in trust and in faith because of who he is and what he has done. It is absolutely good news. All right. I don't have an ending. Just being up front. I've been thinking about the closing for this sermon for the last four days. And I don't have it. I have no closing. Like, I've struggled with this. I have, I have all these, like, Yahoo articles and all these news things, and I've got, like, all this stuff up on my computer, and I've read all this. I've got about five stories I could tell you right now, but none of them actually close this sermon. They're just good stories. I have no way of closing this sermon. So I've decided I'm just going to keep preaching until next week. <laughs> Is that okay? Okay. Just kidding. I would never put you through that agony. <laughs> um, I'm going to close by praying. And, and I, I just, I know this is hard. I know the message is hard. Uh, John's message was hard. But connected to that hard is the good news of Christ. Uh, that, and that's what we hold on to. The heart is not meant to beat you down. The heart is not make, meant to make you feel guilty. Um, if you feel guilty, stop. Right? In the name of Jesus, stop. Right? Guilt doesn't help you. Guilt doesn't lead you to a good life. Guilt spirals you down. Right? Recognize the forgiveness in Christ. Stand up and recognize that you are forgiven. In fact, stand up. Everybody, stand up. You can stand before the Lord because of Christ. You are forgiven in him. Take that and live out of that. The forgiveness and the joy of Christ, especially in this season. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for new life. Thank you for the spirit who indwells us and gives us power to live in ways we could never live without him. Lord, thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you that you walk with us and that the Lord Jesus has said, I will be with you until the end of the ages. God, help us to hold on to that in joyful expectation of his second coming. We ask this in his name. Amen. And please remain standing because we're going to have a time of prayer together.